Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to Masters of Modern. I am your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's up, guys? Welcome back. This is like a normal episode. We're in the same room. We're talking about relevant things and magic. Oh, man, this is wild. We haven't... Kessler, what was the last time we did this? I haven't seen you in six years. We were running around, right? <laughs> I was I was doing BlizzCon producing. You, yeah. were in, you were in Hong Kong. China. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Dallas, Atlanta... Arkansas? Yeah, it was good. So uh that's that's the where we've been. And then on the on the on the the ones and twos, not that, that's, really. that's what? I was gonna say we have a special guest. Hey man, Corey, what's going on? Corey Burkhardt, welcome to the party. Hey guys, how y'all doing? We're doing great. Welcome back to the show. How how are you doing? Uh it would be difficult to complain. I mean <laughs> second place at a GP feels pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. man. I was so excited to see that that happened. Uh, especially considering, and we'll talk about this a little more, you and I had just had like a sweet brew conversation at the Andrew Brown going away party uh, to see you to see you make the finals of a modern Grand Prix. Just just a mere week later was just like this is the sweetest. Well, and 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 without losing a match up until that point. Yeah, pretty like unbelievable <laughs> stuff. Pretty unbelievable stuff. So so before we jump into all of the GP storytelling, which we will jump yep, into. A couple of things. First, we're, we're we're now doing this news segment every week. We decided that we're going to front load the podcast with a little, you know, an update on all the things that had happened in Magic. Kind of make it a little bit more open to yep. people that aren't just fully involved with the modern format. And uh, we had some pretty cool new stuff. Um, first, uh, since last week, the Amoket art book was announced. Okay, tell me uh, a little about that. Uh, so, you know, the now for every set, they're coming out with these art books that are like the relatively successful because they keep coming up they're like big table coffee books but they generally have a little bit more of an insight into the story what's going on and and art that's kind of cool with that one thing is one of the uh people who did some of the writing on it will actually be a guest in future episodes um so that'll be sweet cool okay Uh, great uh next uh and this has nothing to do with us and is more fascinating because it's a policy shift for wizards is that uh, wizards coast emergency banned peregrine drake in popper Uh, yes um, so normally, those who you know pay attention to the magic realize that bannings happen right after a set comes out, or right yep. before a set comes out, and some in that like one week period between spoilers ending and and a set and the the pre release and or the set coming out, and then because they kind of missed Peregrine Drake last banning, uh, because Peregrine Drake was added to Popper due to Eternal Masters, um, we they banned it emergency halfway through. They said because it's a a mainly the only place they have actual competitive events are is on moto and it's easier to make the change on moto they thought it was prudent for them to do the ban just like snap quick what set was peregrine drake from originally oh it was an uncommon from saga yeah got it got it got it Corey, do you have any thoughts on this i don't know if you're a popper guy or you pay any attention to it uh no i actually i actually used to play a ton of popper i used to play a bunch of uh blue red sort of the control deck that went big with ulamog's crusher Sweet. So to see the Peregrine Drake band in you know the sort of vein of Cloud of Fairies is not surprising to me at all. When the blue red deck sort of started faltering, I started playing a ghostly flicker blue red deck that I really enjoyed. Um, ghostly flicker, yeah. So Peregrine Drake does not surprise me to be too broken. Uh, but on the point of emergency bands, can you name the only other card to ever be emergency banned? I believe I know it. Uh, I believe I know it, and I think, unless I'm mistaken. 
It's Memory Jar? You're correct. Yes. Yeah, I knew yeah, it. Memory Jar completely and utterly busted in every format you could ever play it in. I don't expect you to ever pass in a cube draft unless you, you know, are the hater of fun in that draft. Was it, uh, was it, was it Memory Jar banned, like, also between, like, the pre-release and the actual release of the set or something ridiculous? Uh, I, I think that might have I'm been not, Skull Clamp you're thinking of. No, no, Skull Clamp went a while. Really? Corey? Yeah, I, I'm not actually certain when the time frame it was banned. The story that I was told is the set came out, there was a week that the set was out, and then there was a second week. The second week was going to be a big tournament. That first weekend, they banned Memory Jar, like, before any real tournament occurred. Got it. Okay, I think that's, that's the story. That's the story I've heard. I'm not, I'm fuzzy on the details. I don't know the actual specifics as well before I played Magic. Yeah, same. But just... That sounds Compare about right. the two cards that have been emergency banned. Five mana, two, three flyer on tap, five year lands, and one of the each most... player draws seven cards <laughs> and then loses them. For a long time, Memory Jar was one of my favorite cards ever printed, like in my younger days of Magic. But I think it's interesting. It's people's styles do change uh, in terms of what they like to play. And that type of deck became less the thing I was interested in doing as I got older. Um, but that was uh, for a long time. That was on my top five or top ten favorite Magic cards. Probably still would be top twenty for me though. Yeah. So, so uh, do you guys think the fact that Wizards is emergency banning cards now is something to be a little bit more worried about, or you think this is an emergency case because a set that wasn't tested for eternal formats printed a card into a format that Wizards doesn't pay attention to, and they kind of like forgot about it, and then it was like, oh right, Popper's completely broken with this card. I think they're pretty. I think they're pretty sympathetic to the fact that they don't want to get the reputation of emergency banning cards. And I think this is one of the situations where it's, this was not like, it's first of all, it's popper, which is, it's not talking about emergency bans in standard or modern. People don't have $6,000 investments into the format or. Yeah. And it's like, it, I don't know. I, I, this doesn't, this doesn't really bother me at all. What about you, Corey? I, I'm in sort of the same boat. I think wizards is exceptionally disciplined. I think that, you know, they took their time on this one. Like they let it, sort of sit in the format long enough to go, okay, this thing's winning. Okay, this thing's posting a very high win rate. Okay, this thing's, I think, a little bit out of line. I think they actually let it sit around long enough to the point where the Moto, you know, popper playing community was like, okay, we don't even want this around anymore. Can we please be done with this? Yeah, it is like, It is interesting why it's so powerful. I mean, I, like I, there's like a handful of those untapped lands type of cards, but I guess... Cloud of Fairies well, is also banned, right? Yeah, all of them are banned <laughs> in Popper. Got it, got yeah. it. That makes yeah, sense. The, the biggest thing would be the lands that they call the Karoos, the Azorius Chanceries of the world, the lands that tap for two mana. Yeah. Uh, being able to untap those, I mean, th these things start turning a profit on mana once you have a third land in play in case of the Peregrine Drake, and it's not that difficult to get three lands in play in Popper. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so continuing to move through the news, uh, one piece of the news is that Corey Burkhart, Makes the finals and loses in the finals to Scred Red at the last GP. Which, sorry, Corey, had to throw you in that one, but uh, I think you're aware that that happened. Um, Dagger's always accepted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes Scred Red uh, is a mono red deck, and it means that now the only two mono red decks not to have won a Grand Prix in modern Mon mono colored decks. What did I say? Mono red decks. Oh, the only two <laughs> mono colored decks not to have won a Grand Prix in modern are mono white. And mono black. Yeah, the, the closest are uh, a, a, a Martyr of Sands, Pocromation of Rebirth, mono white, Soul Sisters esque deck, top aided Made during top the eight. Jeskai Ascendancy yep. Treasure Cruise era, and then uh, eight rack top aided over the summer. Yep, yep. Those would be the if you were gonna if you were gonna guess the strategy, those would be the two. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at some point 
in black if you saw a mono black zombies list poke through and I get think lucky. I think devotion is the most likely. Just like yeah, like a control that kind of inspired obliterator by followed by gray merchant sounds yeah. s- still sounds brutal, um, and that's ignoring any bloodgast or other three and two drops you have in play. And I think if you were going to go outside of soul sisters and white. Um, there are like those mono white prison decks I've seen. Prison decks. Oh, there's also like there's always like the Sun Titan plus Flicker Wisp, uh, kind of value white mono white decks that have kind of always been around. And there's Hate Bears. There's mono white Hate Bears. Yeah, those those would be the decks that would come to mind. But uh, I don't think any of those is very so, likely right. to win a Grand Prix anytime soon. And so people know uh, Elves is the mono green deck that has ever won a G- that won a GP, and uh, Merfolk is the mono blue deck. In your testing, Corey, uh, for playing in the modern format, I know you obviously gravitate back towards Grixis always because it's it's your love child. But um, wh- have you tested with any of the decks we just mentioned? So I played a ton with Merfolk. Merfolk used to be the first modern deck I think I ever really sort of net deck employed. That deck is so um, sweet. Mer- Merfolk's super fun. Anybody that plays Merfolk right now, I'm really sorry that your baby's in sort of a really rough spot where it's not greatly positioned. In fact, um, seems like a bad matchup. <laughs> and by it, it seems, it is. Can yeah. <laughs> yeah, Merfolk just doesn't have any good spots in the format right now. Um, I've played a ton against Elves, never with Elves. It's a deck that I would actually like to play. I think learning how to play a bunch of different decks is very useful, no matter who you are, no matter what kind of deck you like to play. If you understand systematically how a deck functions, you're just going to be much better positioned. Better play against um, it, mostly. Yeah. And then... I don't know. I, I personally think eight racks actually not as bad of a deck as everyone gives it credit, you know, sort of harps on it for. So to see that it's made a top eight to say that it couldn't make a top eight again, I think, I don't know. We, we haven't seen the end of eight rack. You never know how crazy modern can get. Well, and also, and then I think the other, the other one, well, and then what about the white decks? Anything there? So I actually played a few times testing for this event against mono white prison decks. And I actually lost a ton to them where, they would just sort of grind me out with a Myria Proclamation of Rebirth. I got timed out by one on Moto. I think it's the first time I've timed out in years, where the guy just literally got to six lands and playing just uh, Proclamation of Rebirth on forecast, get back Martyr, sack Martyr, gain 18 life. And Grixis doesn't do well against gain 18 life a turn on, you know, tap all of my lands and I can't interact when I don't have any, you know, hand disruption spells on my list anymore. Well, the reason the white prison decks can work is because obviously... And Snaring Bridge is a colorless card, and if you want to just go super, super deep on that, you can play Ghostly Prison, which is, I've seen the, the prison decks that do that, and they can go very deep on that, and they have the ability to pretty much always draw those cards, which is pretty good. I mean, that, that can go pretty far, honestly. It's a fairly effective strategy. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, that was, uh, that was that one, and then, of course, the Scred deck, which is pretty baller. I mean, if you were going to lose in a Grand Prix, I have to, I have to ask, like, Obviously, losing in a Grand Prix is is pretty balls. That's like not the sweetest thing. Um, though you've been very successful in recent memory playing Magic, especially at a very high level. But if you were going to lose, there has to be some part of you that's like, I lost to a pretty inventive, pretty sweet deck. No? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> losing sucks. Yeah, it's going to be hard for me to say that. I yeah. yeah, if I had to lose, I'd want to lose to this thing. But at the end of the day, the list was pretty sweet. Kevin seemed like an awesome guy. I've never met Kevin before, but he was very gracious, very nice. I It would be hard for me to say, yeah, I would rather to not have Kevin in his mono-red scred deck win the tournament. I mean, he was playing scrying sheets in <laughs> modern. You know? He had literal three-peer and Karenalars in his deck. He yeah. had a Chandra. He was this playing deck's great. four yeah. Koth. 
I mean, I read the list. I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to shake Corey's hand and just ask him about this because I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's not to say, of course, that we're not going to we're not going to drool all over the Grixis list because well, it's we're gonna, we're just gonna... as sweet. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you, yeah, anyway, we'll get there. We'll we're going to get on. Yeah. OK, let's finish the news and we'll get on to the sweetness that was GP Dallas. Yeah. Uh, next uh, today, actually, big announcement. Um, Wizards of the Coast will be releasing a re-release of Eternal Masters um, for as like a Christmas gift to stores. They they heavily encourage that stores keep this product for drafting specifically and host drafts. Um, <clears throat> there's kind of two interesting things about this. A, this is kind of something that hasn't happened before. Um, that Wizards goes back on does a reprint set as kind of a holiday gift, and also it does make me believe that uh, Modern Masters 2017 uh, has chances of also if this is successful uh, doing the same kind of thing and getting a second re-release next year. Interesting. Uh, Okay, gotcha, gotcha. You're not not a reprinting of fifteen. You're saying of seventeen. Of seventeen. Oh, so gotcha, ne- gotcha. next year, Modern Master seventeen comes out, which we'll eventually talk about, and then not today. But, but they haven't then. announced it officially, right? No, they did. They actually officially. Yeah, yeah, they Wait, officially they announced did? it. Seventeen comes out in June. No, it comes out in uh, March or April. Really? April. It comes out between the uh, winter set and the uh, spring set. See, I thought we did a modern podcast where I was totally aware of things going on in the world. Yeah, you guys don't know this. <laughs> when was this announced? I was going to say when they like pooped I've out this big announcement of everything. You know how they do like their one big announcement yeah. all year? It's like a byline in there because there's no information on it. But yeah. But they gave a date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like coming up pretty soon. Yeah, like in six months. Oh, so they're going to crazy. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. exciting. Super exciting. We'll, we'll see Modern Master 17, I think, before we see Amoket. Wow. Okay. Fair enough. Um, last but not least, piece Twitter of news. Twitter can tell me if I'm wrong there because there's a chance it's after Amoket. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. That's last piece right. of news is that uh, my hometown boys. The Seattle Seahawks experienced a brutal and crushing loss this week. Not in football, but lineman Cassius Marsh had a $20,000-plus Magic Card collection stolen from him. Out of his car. Out of his car. So if you guys, you can, if you go to the Wizards of the Coast website, actually, uh, it's the daily update for Thursday, which is yesterday, I think, when this episode was released. Um, They have a list of his collection. So if you're in the Seattle area or somewhere nearby, keep an eye out for that list, I guarantee yeah, yeah. Keep an eye. It, 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 that always sucks. It's cool that one of the Seattle Seahawks is into magic and is like very much into magic. Yeah, uh, I feel bad. Wizards, you saw the thing today that they sent him like a massive care package. No, yeah, they sent him like a huge care package, like tons of tons of sealed product. Um, a lot of Wizards employees donated personal cards from their collections, like rare and awesome oh, that's cards. Really, that's sweet. Uh, and then they also matched the donation, which I think was over twenty thousand dollars in magic cards, to a local Seattle charity, oh, uh, the Children's Hospital to match obviously so they weren't just giving a football player back magic cards they were both doing that in charity which is really great um and awesome and go seahawks because they're great and uh i was gonna say something else about, oh i was gonna say that i when i was 14 i think or so yeah 14 um i had a backpack stolen out of a friend's car going to the movies in seattle and it had two binders of magic cards in it and it was all of my gold cards and all of my lands huh. and oh, that sucks that's a yeah, lands probably, and I probably lost. I don't even remember now, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was three or four grand in magic, and I was heartbroken, and it crushed me. So I feel for you, Cassius. It sucks. You know, the the closest I have to that is it's actually I think maybe the reasons I don't like sports anymore is before I got into magic it was like right before literally I think magic followed this as my hobby. Um, I was really into basketball cards. Yeah. And I had like rookie Magic Johnson cards. I had a, a Michael Jordan, but for that one year where he was 45 instead of 23, right after baseball season. Okay, sure. So, like, 
cards that I assume I don't know anything about baseball cards now that are worth some money at these days. Right. Uh, stolen out of my bag in the playground, and then immediately never cared about sports again. <laughs> ruined you forever. Ruined me forever. That's why the only basketball player like I don't I probably couldn't name a basketball player playing right now, but that's not true. It's definitely not true. Griffin. But you could name ten. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. I was gonna say there's no way. <laughs> okay. I refuse to believe. Lies. Uh, but. I couldn't tell you a basketball player's number right now. That's I, also hard to do. I play fantasy basketball, and I could probably tell you like 10. I, yeah, no, I can't do that. But I can tell you basketball numbers from the early 90s of basketball. So let's move on to uh, – that's it. I think that's the news. I don't see anything else on our news list. Nope. If we missed some crazy news story that happened the last two weeks, let us know. Um, I guess we still haven't talked about the fact that the rotation and standard is different. I think we mentioned it on a show. I think we mentioned it. Okay. I might have mentioned it in one of the, like that solo show. Guys, anybody who listens to the podcast knows it's been a weird month. It's been a lot of like, <laughs> there was like a couple solo shows. There was like the Andrew Brown interview goodbye show. There was like me Skyping in for a show. Like, uh, we're very sorry for the inconsistency on release dates and things like that. Uh, we promise we're going to be a little more consistent. I don't think we've missed any shows. We might have missed one. We missed some in September. I think we missed one. Yeah. Um, but we've been very we've been trying, and and I I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as hard uh, going forward. It was just a uh, a very tumultuous it was a, a patch. confluence of events. Um, but yeah, and uh, the but yeah. yeah. So just in case we didn't talk about standard is rotating like the old ways. The one thing I like about this, and, I, th- and that's what I'll bring it up a little bit, is that I'm glad Wizards is willing to try stuff out and then also admit fault. Right. It's, it's, it's a sign that they're willing to see if something is better, and then when they realize it's not, move towards more of a safer position. Um, yep. All right. So, Corey, any thoughts on that before we jump right into Twitter things and then your, your GP experience? So, I think from a personal level obviously i'm playing more at a competitive level than most people who collect cards but i also buy a case every set to see cards last six months more in standard is really sweet but from a competitive standpoint having to play with the same cards for an extra six months a little less sweet i think there's trade-offs there i completely understand the decisions wizards made personally i think it affects me in a negative standpoint but i think it affects the greater whole of magic in a positive standpoint if it makes magic better overall hey i'm for it yeah, I think Magic's in a pretty sweet place either way, but it's I, I can see that it would it would affect people differently if you were in the heavily competitive scene versus not. Um, what, what's kind of interesting about it, just from like my vague understanding of standard, is the main thing that this did was made it so fetch lands and shock lands, or not shock lands, dual lands didn't exist in standard for the same amount of time, which is interesting to me just because like the one thing that they saved would have been actually pretty damaging to standard. Like they got rid, and so I don't know. That's, yeah another six months of Jace and Fetchlands being 60 bucks and right. 30 bucks respectively. I don't know. All right. So, Corey, Corey, do you quickly just, just because we talk about sometimes the comparisons between standard and modern. And it's been a little while since I've played a lot of standard. I mean, I, I, I've gone through phases where I've played more of it, but um, I always notice that when cards are printed and new things come out, I always find myself a little bit of like, I'm just less excited because the casting cost and like the interaction. I don't know. It's just like the games exist on turns four and five so much more. Um, And that's why I think I gravitate towards modern. Do you, when new cards are printed, do you have a similar feeling or you're fairly vanilla with your opinion towards cards? You sort of rate them in a vacuum of the format that you're supposed to. I wish I was as unbiased as that. I, I very much have a lens, which is I look at the card sort of for what the card is. Usually my blanket statement is look at the card. Is the card sort of powerful or not powerful? And then if it lives in a vacuum where I see some sort of potential for it, my mind starts running through, 
can I play this in modern? Can I play this in standard? Can I play this in, you know, if there's going to be a block format? Is this legacy playable? Is this vintage playable? What are sort of the crazy kooky combos that work with this thing? A lot of the times when you look at a card that just looks like utterly baffling, maybe not even powerful, but just is like sort of weird. Those are the cards that really start getting my gears turning where I'm like, okay, what can I actually do with this? Yeah, um, yeah. I totally, so, totally agree. Paradoxical Outcome, I think, is that card that we've sort of seen, if you follow Vintage at all, is really doing some work in Vintage where you cast in your Storm deck and you pick up all your mocks and then you replay all your mocks and now the Storm counts at like 14 or what have you. I mean, that's a card you just look at and you're like, this isn't like normal Magic cards. Right, right, right. You see the angle that's just totally, not even just break it, but smash it. Exactly. And I, I'm not going to claim to have thought, okay, this is going to be great in Vintage the second I saw that card. But it doesn't surprise me to watch people go, oh, look, I can pick up four artifacts of this and just draw four new cards. Look, I, I think we all I think we all have those the, the moment that you realize something works with something else. It doesn't make it any less sweet when you look online and find that, like, you know, 400 people have already figured it out. I, on the smallest level, I remember the day well after it was out of standard that I realized that Grand Architect could tap itself to cast Mere Superior. I was so excited. <laughs> I was so pumped. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, I didn't even realize that worked. It's two of my favorite cards. Um, anyway, moving on to Twitter stuff. <laughs> All right. So, as you guys know, our Twitter is at the MMCast. We are both very motivated to talk to you on Twitter, so please follow us there. Uh, I am personally on Twitter at Kess Wiley. I'm at Ben Bateman Media. Corey? Uh, at Corey underscore Burkhart. Perfect. And make sure to follow us on YouTube. That is the other major place to kind of find us. Uh, um, that we're doing cool different content than actually just listening to the podcast, and that is uh, youtube.com slash TV. Yeah, all the recent episodes go up now. Mike Clary, who's our uh, video editor, he goes in and he uh, he adds uh, imagery to the videos so you can like see what we're talking about, which is awesome. He's a great dude. He's very good at Highlander Roulette. Yeah, we're, we're, awesome. we're not always the best at describing the card we're talking to talking about, uh, especially when they're the more common ones, but if you're new to modern, new to magic, or just want a reminder of what the card does, you can watch it on YouTube, and they we there's pictures of them. We they, You get to read the card. And uh, last but not least, remember that we have just moved off. Uh, we'll, we are now on a new platform. Collected.company is the name of the website. Um, it is a magic card currently a magic card podcast hosting site us and the commands on both are there you can find our podcasts and their podcasts at collected.company um so that's that yeah, they do awesome commander content they do it every week they're doing a cool awesome series right now on all the new commander decks that come out this weekend um i know i'm super stoked for these decks i know you are vaguely stoked for foily reasons yeah. and uh yeah so go check jimmy and josh out their stuff's awesome our stuff's awesome. It's all in Collected.Company, the new home for us. And support us on Patreon. Uh, the ability to pay Mike to make those videos is oh from yeah. our Patreon account, patreon.com slash the MMCast. Um, you, some of you guys have items in the mail right now, so uh, you know, check that out. There's a video of what we do and, and all those things. Sweet. All right. So, Corey, you just went undefeated other than in the last game of the entire tournament in a modern tournament, taking... A deck that most people wouldn't have said was a deck before the tournament. Grixis, Control. How's it feel? I mean, I wish I could have won the tournament, but all things told, damn, it feels great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely still. An, I mean, it, it, winning or not, it, that's a huge accomplishment. The amount of, I think I think I looked it up. Like the amount of times someone has even come close to doing that is like once or twice before in the history of Magic. How close were you to playing? the Sahili Rayluk Metal Coding deck that you and I spoke at length about at Andrew's party before coming to the conclusion that you should play this deck. 
All right, so to go on a tangent for a little bit, okay. uh, those of you that don't know or didn't listen to the podcast, Andrew Brown has left Southern California. Ben and I were gracious enough to, you know, spend some time with Andrew before he left us forever. And we're sitting there, I don't know, probably about 12.45. I'm a little bit past the point of tipsy, and Ben's sitting there completely sober, as he always is. And we're sitting there talking about crazy kooky things you can do in modern. And we get talking about liquid metal coating and Sahili Rye. So liquid metal coating, you tap it, you turn a permanent into an artifact. Sahili Rye will make a copy of a, an artifact that also is an artifact. So you can make a copy of herself with her minus ability and just keep doing this infinite many times as long as you want to, I guess. If you have something that triggers uh, it, obviously that's how you get benefit out of it. Exactly. You play Alter the Brood. You get to mill them for a card every time a permanent enters your graveyard because Sahili is a token and enters your graveyard, then state base removes it, so you still mill them for a card. Or you can have Disciple of the Vault and play and drain them for one. Uh, lo and behold, I burned about 100 tickets buying this deck. And I'll be honest, I don't remember winning a match. <laughs> so, you weren't doing it right. Uh, I try to build out that had Glittonous Crane and some extra artifacts. Um, I tried a four-color version that had Glittonous Crane and Ancient Stirrings out. Um, yeah, there's there's something going on there. Like, there are still some powerful combos. I'm not exactly sure what you're supposed to be doing, whether it's supposed to be a liquid metal coating, Sahili Rai deck, if you're supposed to be playing some sort of, like, Tezzeret control deck. I think there are powerful elements there. I think the modern format in its current state is like exceptionally hateful where it's sort of driven down to the bottom now where if you're not as low to the ground as you can possibly go, you have to be doing something really, really nice. And I just wasn't doing something that was interactive enough, powerful enough on the average draw to actually win a match against the Moto metagame that is heavily infested with burn and infect and affinity and dredge and I mean, it- all the like. To comment on it, it's a three-card combo that none of the pieces separately are good. Well, hang on, hang on. We, <laughs> we talked, what he's not saying is that there was versions of the deck we talked about, and one of the major versions of the deck that we talked about is a version that's aggressively trying to blow up your opponent's lands using not just, so you're playing Colagon's Command with Liquid Metal Coating and the whole deal. So then uh-huh. on turn two, you can play the Coating. Turn three, whether you have Sahili or you have a Colagon's Command, it turns Colgon's Command into a super, super sweet Stone Rain, um, but that you're obviously playing recursive things and whatnot. So it's, I mean, it, I'm not saying it's good, but there's different angles to the deck. Sure. How, how many decks in the format currently need to get past three lands? Yeah, it's true. No, 100%. Corey, I, we commend you for <laughs> having bought the, bought the deck. I believe in both of you. I'm just, I'm being the, <laughs> the sour The idea sack. of doing the Painter Servant turn your land into blue permanent and blowing up with Red Blast. It felt very similar. Turn your land into an artifact. Colgon's command it. Okay. It turns out Colgon's commanding your opponent's land after you've taken turn one off to set up your mana, and then take a turn two off to play this derpy artifact, and then now I'm you know shocking your one creature and shattering your land. That works against some decks. There are not just some decks in modern. There are a lot of decks. Fair, fair. So. It was fun. I'll, I'll definitely say it was really fun being the guy that just wanted to light the world on fire. But I think you can do that in a few more effective matters. You know, maybe blood mooning your opponent on turn two or turn three. But so let's let's uh, move let's move on from the uh, the Sahili deck. Let's take let's take it from the point <laughs> that you took that you took the plunge. Uh, call so, so call why, it inspiration. <laughs> why why did you play Grixis? How'd you well, get there? And how and how did you kind of come to the list you decided on? 
So I've played Grixis for a while now. I ended up getting off it pretty early on when testing for the modern GP. I tried out Death Shadow. Um, if you guys don't know, I'm on the team channel Fireball uh, and Associates, which used to be Team Ultra Pro, and most of the team's exceptionally high in Death Shadow. So I tried out Death Shadow, very first run with the deck I 5 owed I think I played it two or three more times that week and did not manage to get over two wins. All right, so I dumped Death Shadow. I try Infect again after playing Infect at Indianapolis, where I 2-4 the deck, and I made a complete fool out of myself every single match that I played it. Couldn't win with Infect. Uh, I tried Dredge out. I play literally five matches with Dredge. I go 4-1. and one. The match I lose is to my opponent literally putting a hate card into play on turn zero, lay line of the void, both games, and I don't find a nature's claim. That's not the kind of magic that I, I show up to a tournament to play. Um... So I eventually try out all these decks that are, you know, quote-unquote busted, quote-unquote the best decks in the format. And I eventually get back to the point where I'm like, all right, what do I like to do? Well, I like to play long, grindy games with tons of weird and interactive things going on where maybe my opponent doesn't always know what I'm up to. That I have the greater amount of information because I know what their deck's doing. They don't really know all the angles I'm attacking from. That's sort of what Grixis has allowed me to do you know, at Grand Prix Pittsburgh last year and more recently at Grand Prix Los Angeles this past year, or I guess not even this past year, it's like five months ago at this point. So I sort of just ended up back at the same place. I tied a bunch of different Grixis builds. I learned about some new magic cards, Countersquall being one of them. Who, who would have thought that was a magic card? Card sweet. And I don't know, sort of my baby. I didn't want to, I didn't want to let it down again and not play it at a tournament and it certainly treated me well. Well, I mean, you and I, part of the conversation when we weren't discussing Sahili Ray was uh, was about uh, the kind of magic that it's worth playing and why it's fun to play it. And I think you and I had a really si pretty similar attitude, which is that it's just fine to play cards that someone else has told you are good or you know are intrinsically powerful. But if you don't win with those cards, it's pretty deflating. It's a It's a pretty, like... It's not quite a case of the feel-bads, but it's pretty close if you didn't really enjoy the kind of magic you were playing in the tournament anyway. And I think we have the similar attitude, which is that if you show up with cards you like and you win, winning is obviously that much sweeter, but at least losing, you got to do things you enjoyed. And so it sounds like you came back to that point uh, after testing all these other decks of, of realizing what you loved and, and that if you were going to travel and play it, that's what you wanted to play with. No, this is certainly very true. Like, I'm not going to fault anybody that wants to play Infect in a tournament. I think Infect's a great deck. I just don't think it's the deck for me. I don't think that I can't learn to play Infect better. It's just not a deck that I find the most appealing for the sort of games of magic that I like to play. Like when Abzan was a good deck in Standard, the Abzan Control decks, that was the kind of deck that I like to play where there was tons of weird little decisions that lead to one ultimate conclusion. This Grixis deck, there's a ton of very small decisions that end up leading to the very same series of plays where I'm going Snapcaster Mage, Colagons Command you, and Snapcaster Mage, Cryptic Command, pick up my Snapcaster Mage. So, like, so, so sweet. Those are the games <laughs> that I love to play. But it's a lot of those little decisions that get me to that final three to four turns of the game where my opponent's just in a complete chokehold and they can't get out of it. So now tell me how many... So you show up to this tournament and you've decided to play this deck, and I'm sure some of your friends and your teammates are like, go for it, play what you're comfortable with. And I'm sure some probably are a little bit more either playing a bad deck. <laughs> um, uh, 
Go ahead. Yeah, when... there were a few more choice words than that, but yeah. <laughs> so when you show up, what's your expectation? You're a really good magic player, obviously. You know you can win you you can win games that maybe by statistical average you shouldn't. But obviously when you go into a tournament playing something that people who are really good are telling you is not a good choice. What what's it like going walking in the doors with that? I know, but I'm not somebody who's ever top eight at a Grand Prix, so my faith in myself to do it's a little different than yours. So I'd be lying if I said I showed up to a modern tournament and didn't expect to do at least reasonably well. I think modern is a format I've put by far the most amount of my time into. I know I've put over a thousand matches into Grixis Control just on Magic Online. It's it's sort of a format that really, really, really rewards familiarity with your deck and the interactions that your deck can run into. And I feel like I've explored certainly not all of those, but many of those within the sort of normal structure of the format in terms of these are the decks that I expect to play. So when I show up to a modern tournament, my expectation is to maybe not do well per se, but to not be surprised when I sit down at the table and go, oh, my opponent can do that. Because I used to be that player. Two years ago, I would sit down at the table and literally have no idea what my opponent was doing until turn three. Now I sit down at a table and I I feel like I know better than my opponent in some cases what's going to be going on in the match. And that's because of so many iterations and so many games of modern. So while I'm not going to sit here and tell you, yeah, I expected to be holding a trophy at the end of the weekend, I was hoping you know, for an 11-4, 12-3 result that I could be proud of. And just knowing that, hey, this Grixis control deck that I've worked on you know, maybe it's still not a great deck, but it's a deck I really enjoy. It allows me to play sweet games. And hey, look at this. I've got another sweet result on my resume with it. Another two or three pro points. That's sort of what I'm going into the weekend ring for. I mean, that's something that, like, is I guess feels a little bit forgotten about Modern. And it was very much true in, in kind of looking back at the Birthing Pod Splinter Twin era. Um, what kind of ended up happening is it almost rewarded you to get better with your deck than the kind of meta game. Like, the way Birthing Pod took so long to just show itself as the best deck in the format is it took years, if not a year, um, for the pros that were best at playing that deck to get the best at playing that deck because it had so many different lines of play and was so difficult to play correctly. And you know, recently because the format has been a little bit more tumultuous, because there has been some bannings, um, because Wizards of the Coast happens to have printed, you know, a couple of blocks in a row, these format-altering decks bet- behind, you know, Eldrazi, Dredge, uh, and the Delve cards from Konzatark here block, that, you know, the format hasn't really had a chance to rest. And, and we even talked about this a little bit during the Pro Tour, uh, when there was modern Pro Tours, of something that we were interested in was more seeing, instead of a banning changing what the format looks like, seeing pros like you, Corey, where you would be playing the same deck you are known to play in this format. You know, you know when you go into this, in, into watching the the modern Pro Tour, that doesn't exist anymore. But that Corey Burkhart was going to be playing Grixis Control. That you know this player was going to play this deck, and this player was going to play this deck, and then you can kind of kind of do it similar to sports almost, where you're seeing the player you're expecting to play this deck at the best possible level versus oh, did they break the format? Yeah, I mean it's like okay, that whole idea of uh, that whole idea of repetition being frustrating. Uh, okay, you go and watch a you watch a basketball game, and it's like some players have a really good post game. They're just gonna try to put in two points as close to the basket as they possibly can. Steph Curry shoots threes. That's what he's really, really good at doing. You play against Steph, you know he's gonna drain a lot of threes. So this is just what happens. It's the same result over and over again. If he wasn't doing the same thing every single game, 
he wouldn't be perfect at doing it. I think it's like, it's cool to see that you've put in the hours on a Grixis control, a deck that some people don't think is tier one. A lot of people don't think it's tier one, yet because of your familiarity with it. You know, something I was thinking about was like, you talked about the interactions, knowing the interactions so well, right? The, the sort of fringe cases of things that would happen. And I think that those things that when you're starting out with a deck, you think about all the things that would have to line up for this like sort of corner case scenario to play out, maybe in a desperate situation when your back's up against a wall. I get the feeling that if you're really proficient with the deck and you know the deck inside and out, those corner case type of interactions happen a lot more than people would realize because you're playing yourself into that situation, right? You, you can see the game six, seven turns ahead because you know your list so well. You know exactly what you have to do. I think it makes the sort of infinitesimal things that seem almost impossible to happen actually not as unlikely as people would think Wait, because you know what's up. Yeah, not, not only do you know your deck, but you know how your deck plays against larger swaths of the field. Do you think that that's? I mean, do you think that, that there's some truth to that? That those those niche scenarios happen more often than people realize because you have sort of almost subconsciously played yourself in there by knowing your list as well as you do. No, I, I totally agree. It actually came up on my drive home from work today. Like, I had a buddy call me and he was like, "Hey, I've got somebody here. He's been playing your decks since the Grand Prix. He would really love to pick your brain." And I'm like, "Sure, put him on the phone." So he puts this guy on the phone and he's like all right, so I'm running these weird spots where I, I just don't know how to sequence my spells. Like, what are you doing? And it was actually a thing where I had to actually stop and break down what my thought process was, and I didn't realize that these questions that he was having, and I had actually had questions like this from my friends previously that I gave a list to a Grand Prix LA, which is, what is your sequencing? Like, he'd get these hands that were Serum Visions, Ancestral, Lightning Bolt, and a Fetch Land, and he's just like, I don't know if I'm on the play. Am I supposed to just suspend the Ancestral Visions? Do I need to leave up the Fetch Lane and leave up Lightning Bolt? What do I do if I also have a Thought Scour? Uh, and I'm like stopping and thinking about it. And to me, it's very obvious because I've done this hundreds and thousands of times. But for him, he's literally doing it for like his 20th and 30th time. Which and to some people is, seems like quite a bit for the record. I mean, even when you play a deck 30 times, some people feel like they know a deck pretty well. It's totally different than playing it a thousand times. Yeah, especially when you're playing a deck like this where you don't usually know what the entire game is going to play out like. You're going to see a ton of different cards through Ancestral Visions, through Serum Visions, through Thought Scour. You're going to care about your graveyard because of Tastigram, because of Snapcaster Mage. You get into a lot of pretty wonky spots where it's just like, okay, half of my deck's going to be gone. Well, what does that mean that half my deck's gone? Well, maybe I can't fetch a certain land now. Maybe I needed to fetch that land back on turn two. Okay, well, what is my land sequencing going to be for the first three, four turns? Like, these are things that I was telling him that basically I, when I draw an opening hand, I'm trying to figure out as far as I humanly possibly can ahead, what is my game plan for the next X turns? Right, right, right. So let's go through the list a little bit here so people can kind of know what you're working with, and then we can talk a little bit about the match and the top eight and things like that. Yeah, like definitely go over some of the cards and, and figure out why you picked. So I, I guess the first place I want to start, since it's the lone artifact in the main, uh, why one Engineer Explosives? You're so stoked, Kessler. It's I know, like your I favorite this card, card ever. <laughs> so this is actually a fun one. In reality, the deck is like a 59-card deck, and I've got 16 sideboard cards. And the 16th sideboard card is one engineered explosives in the main and one in the sideboard. Um, I eventually reached the point that there's enough Death Shadow Zoo, there's enough of the new blue-red, sometimes Grixis, uh, Spells deck with Kiln Fiend thing in the eyes, Death Shadow, 
Um, that Engineered Explosives is a card that I actually really like right now in the metagame. I think it's fairly well positioned. There's enough decks that it actually hits some amount of targets. If it's not excellent there, it's at least serviceable. Uh, in fact, it's very good on one against cleaning up the Noble Hierarchs, the Glistener Elves. Against Affinity, it's fantastic on two. All of the cards that you literally build an Affinity deck for cost two mana. Um, it's also an effective way on three to kill Edge Champion, which if you look otherwise, the deck will not be able to kill unless you can take them off of Metalcraft. Um, it's an effective card even against things like Abzan. I can put it on zero and kill tokens. It's fine on two against Tarmogoyf Scavenging Ooze, Grimflayer. The card's just hyper-flexible, does a bunch of different things. Maybe not at the most efficient rate, but it's a catch-all that I'm very happy to have one of in my main deck. All right. <laughs> um, next is um, Tassiger. So Tassiger is the quote-unquote closer of the deck. And by a closer, I mean we hope to play him on turn two. You're playing three Tassiger, uh, <laughs> four Snapcaster Mage, for the record. You have seven creatures total in the deck. Correct. There's zero on the sideboard anymore, with the exception of Fulminator Mage and a Staticaster that don't usually kill people. Got it. Um, if, you're, if you're killing somebody with those cards, you're really doing it. I don't but even know, how, how would you kill someone with Is It Static Caster? Is it possible? They would have to give you a stuffy doll, and you would stuff <laughs> the stuffy doll a lot. Um, other than that, I guess if somebody was playing Jackal Pup, I could ping a Jackal Pup a lot. Is that legal in Modern? No, or maybe they have a they have an important creature and a spell skite, and you repeatedly try to hit the important creature, and they redirect <laughs> two damage repeatedly. Uh, see, th see, there are lines of play. We can figure it out. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Tassiger is a card advantage engine with his activated ability. Use it pretty frequently to control your graveyard that you can then keep the specific spells you'd like to flash back in the Snapcaster Mage or get back to your game with Tassiger. Um, so he's great for drawing cards in the mid to late game. A great threat, a four power threat that has five toughness, survives lightning bolt, survives lightning helix. Um, usually can block a Tarmogoyf because you're able to control your graveyard enough that you exile enough uh, permanence. However, the game gets super late game. Some decks can get a Planeswalker or an Artifact, so sometimes can't block a Tarmogoyf. But he does a fairly good job at being both a roadblock and a win condition. And he's a six-mana creature that doesn't die to Abrupt Decay. Sometimes comes down on turn two, thanks to Thoughtscour. Yeah, I mean, Tasker's super, super awesome. That card's great. Um, how often is turn two? I'd say, like, fairly infrequently. I don't have an exact percentage in my mind. If I had to just sort of make up one, I'd guess it's between 15 and 20% that you could actually have a realistic draw where you have, like, a fetch land and a thought scour. You don't need two thought, you don't need, um, excuse me, two fetch lands to make it happen. But you also see a ton of cards. So if you ever have a hand with an opening hand Tassiger, it's not completely unrealistic to also be able to turn to it. Right, I mean, yeah, that, that's all. All that takes in the opener is Tasker, Fetch, and Thoughtscour, which doesn't seem that crazy. I mean, that seems like yeah, at least at least twenty percent, I would guess. But uh, moving on to your spells, you've got you've got eight sorceries in the deck, uh, four Ancestral Vision and four Seer Visions. Now, Ancestral Vision is a polarizing card. That's a card that when it was unbanned, um, for those of you that are unfamiliar, because it has only been recently legal in Modern, uh, is one blue to suspend, suspend four. It has no actual ca casting cost, and uh, when it enters the battlefield. Well, it went the last suspend counter is removed. It is cast without paying its mana cost, and it's draw three cards. I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I, I wonder if, if Corey knows. Are you the most successful? Is this run, this tournament run, the most successful finish for Ancestral Visions since it's been unbanned? To my knowledge, I'm the only person to top eight a Grand Prix with Ancestral Knowledge at all, and I have two now. Ancestral Visions. I, I'm not. 
certain of that though. Yeah, in standard, this card was a powerhouse, and there and there was in the old uh, Bloodbraid Elf was legal in modern days. There was huge concern that if this card was ever unbanned, you could Bloodbraid Elf into it because cascading into this actually works. Um, but it's obviously powerful. Uh, tell us a little bit. I mean, Serum Visions is an obvious four of here, but tell us a little bit why Ancestral Vision works so well in this deck, but not others. So I think what Grixis specifically and my version of Grixis does exceptionally well to make Ancestral Visions a powerful card is I've sort of chopped off the top end of threats that you'll see other decks usually play in order to lower the curve to make the Ancestral Vision something you can realistically survive to cast. So this deck doesn't have to actually just draw its Ancestral Visions on turn one and have it in its opening hand to have the quote-unquote control nut draw. Uh, between... The other spells you see in the deck that are mostly one and two mana, we can actually stall the game out, slow our opponents down, uh, interact with them in some fashion to prevent their combo, prevent whatever their linear strategy is, to get the time to have Ancestral Visions come off suspend and have us draw three more cards, which can help disrupt that package, get us to our fourth, fifth, maybe sixth land drop so we can start Snapcaster Maging all of our crazy spells, playing Tassiger with mana open, and eventually holding open for Cryptic Command. How bummed are you if you draw this, like, turn five? It's not, it doesn't bother you? Um, I mean, it's not the greatest draw on turn five. Like, I'm not stoked. I mean, there's certainly matchups where if I draw it on turn five and suspend it, i.e. Jund, Jeskai, uh, Abzan, like, those three matchups, if you draw it on turn five, you're actually usually pretty happy, which is, like, exceptionally bizarre. Right. But if I draw this on turn five against Dredge, I'm just going to be like, Greatest wasted a draw stab. There are certainly opportunity costs to the card. I'm not going to say they're not. But I think the upside on it is exceptionally high when it works out, such that I'm willing to completely warp the building of my deck to make it a good card. So let's start with the most obvious instance in the deck. The deck's playing 22 in the main. Um, yep. Obviously, four Lightning Bolt. That's pretty much, we don't have to explain that one. Well, according um, to the Jeskai list that top yeah. eight you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were Spoilers. telling us you were telling us off air with that one. The Jeskai list, the top eight played two lightning bolts. That's a that's a ballsy move. I I personally don't understand it. I'm I'm gonna conclude he is much smarter than I am, having not tested uh, Alex's list. Alex is certainly onto something to only be able to play two lightning bolt. I, I would have to actually play a ton of games with his Jeskai list. I would not advise anybody going to a tournament just playing two. I would highly recommend playing four. I think cheap interaction is exactly what you need in modern. And with a deck with three Think Twice and two Sphinx's Revelations, it sounds like a cheap interaction spell like Lightning Bolt is exactly what you're in the market for. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, maybe just he's not killing you that quickly, so the reach of it doesn't matter. And because he's playing three Supreme Verdict, it like... It as a creature spell ends up being less relevant than he wants it to be. You're reaching here. I think this is this is this is the same genius that put Corey in the top eight playing a Grixis deck when people told him not to. Uh, there's no explaining it. It's uh, it it just is what it is, and it made a top eight. So there's something there. There's something there that's doing something right. Um, but let's continue down the list here. So obviously the other the other most obvious four of, and this is the four thought scour. That's uh. That's the other, another one of the linchpin cards of the deck that doesn't need any explanation, really. Let's get into the modal cards here. Oh, oh, hold on. I actually think the Thought Scourers do need some explaining. I think that it's actually a card that is very overlooked. It's usually only played in Blue-Red Storm. Okay. And the main reason for the card here is that you're turning on these Tassigers. Right. The Tassiger is the best threat in the deck in terms of just raw power, in terms of you know turning a 
turning the game and putting a clock on your opponent. This deck's very, very bad at closing the game. If you're looking for a deck that 30 minutes into the round, you're going to be up chatting with your buddies, hanging out, joking, you're not going to be playing this deck unless you're going to put, you know, four Thought Scours in your deck. This deck does not close the game very well. Thought Scour gives you the ability to really apply pressure to the sort of big mana decks like Tron and Scape Shift, um, other control decks that are going to try to get on the board. And Thought Scour also doubles in some matchups where sometimes you can mill them and try to do crazy things with cyborg cards. I think Thought Scour is something that most people overlook. And it is certainly, you know, blue card draw spells 9 through 12. But it sort of functions like the blue dark ritual in this deck because of Delve, because of Snapcaster Mage, because of Kologon's command. Definitely. And I think that's, I mean, that when I say it's obvious to me, I think it, that's something we've seen now, not just out of decks in Modern, but out of your decks as well. Um, it's, I mean, it's a very powerful card. It's been proven to be powerful, and the Delve cards definitely sell it. So I think for this deck, it's a, it has a pretty obvious function, but certainly not to be overlooked in terms of power level. Yeah. I think I totally appreciate it there. I, I think part of that is, is what. And, and more just specifically the Delve cards, is I don't think decks that have played heavy Delve cards that are playing blue haven't played Thought Scour. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Fair you enough. described it best. We, we've talked about it a number of times. It is a blue-dark ritual, which is unbelievable, but it's a blue-dark ritual that draws you a card. So that's ridiculous. Um, let's talk about the modal cards, though. You have four copies of Cryptic Command and three copies of Kolagon's Command in here. Um, obviously, Cryptic so sweet. being <laughs> a counterspell. <laughs> Puts it into another category that we'll get to in a minute, but that's not its only function. So four Cryptics and three Kologon. You've played three Kologon's Command in Grixis decks in the past. In the Grixis decks, or, or the variations on Grixis decks, that has been a thing that sh has shown up. But four Cryptic Command, that is bold, sir. And tell me, tell me the reason for that. So I think the format's in a very similar place to it was at Grand Prix LA, where I played the same split of commands, four Cryptic, three Kologon's Command. Yeah. The format is still in a place where people are trying to go as quickly as possible. Uh, the linear decks are still sort of the, you know, headliners of the format, if you'll say, where people are, oh, man, how do I beat Infect this weekend? How do I beat Affinity? Uh, how do I beat Dredge is now becoming one of the more popular things. Sort of decks like Blue Moon and uh, Tron. Scapeshift is a different story. Scapeshift plays out more like a combo deck than it does sort of like a big mana control deck. But sort of the deck's looking to take the game longer where you would actually need cheaper interaction to fight longer counterspell wars or get down under them are becoming less and less popular. So if you can control the game out to the point where you get to four mana, Cryptic Command is the card that literally allows you to do all of your hopes and dreams. If you want to tap their team and turn the game into a race, Cryptic Command will allow you to do that. If you need to bounce a troubling enchantment, because guess what? Blue, black, and red doesn't really get answers to enchantment. So you're not green and white. Uh, that's going to help you accomplish that goal. If you need to be able to you know, get deeper into your deck, guess what? Blue cards allow you to do that. Cryptic Command is also going to draw you a card just like basically half the cards in the stack. And then, lo and behold, probably the most used mode on the card, Counter Spell. If you're going to be a blue control deck, you can't have answers to everything. Well... If you can't answer everything on the table, you might as well answer it on the stack. Cryptic Command is going to allow you to do that, too. It's it's sort of a catch-all answer that doubles as a win condition, triples as embarrassing your opponent, and quadruples as how much fun can I actually have in this game. Is it your favorite card in the deck? No, I, I'd be lying if I said it was my favorite card. Kologon's Command has to be. That's your favorite card, isn't it? Well, Kologon's Command is my favorite card. I registered it at a Pro Tour where I knew it wasn't going to be great but I was going to die trying to make it great. Kolothgon's Command just sort of assembles everything that I am as a player. 
on the surface, Kologon's Command is a very fair card. It's not doing anything at too good of a rate. It's three mana for Shock, Shatter, Raise Dead, and essentially Raven's Crime. Yep. Yeah, if you I think it's amazing. In, you could say Shatter is also Smelt. So Smelt's a one-mana card, Shock's a one-mana card, Raise Dead's a one-mana card, and Raven's Crime's a one-mana card. So now I'm paying three mana for two mana worth of effects once I choose those two. This card by no means is super powerful, but that's not the things that draw me in. This card allows you so much flexibility, so many different variations, allows you to customize sort of the situation at hand. It interacts with basically every deck in a very positive way and also interacts with what the deck itself is doing in a very positive way. Well, very frequently, I thought Scour myself, I find a Snapcaster Mage, I pick it up, I make you discard a card. Yeah, it interacts with Snapcaster Mage exceptionally well. That's like probably one of the most exciting things. So you got the modal cards. Um, you have uh, three Terminates in the main deck, which function as removal. Again, that's path exile. fairly fairly uh, standard for the color combo. Um, and then lastly, you, you have, uh, it looks like, how many copies of Spell Snare? Is that two? Two copies of Spell Snare, two copies of Counter Spell. Counter Spell. So Spell Snare, another one, another choice uh, Counter Spell that has been played in various blue decks over the years and in well, various yeah, numbers. I'm vastly interested. Why, why these four Counter Spells? Yeah. I have so the, sp the Spell Snares are really effective at catching you up. Um, you'll spend a lot of the time in the early game sort of messing around, trying to figure out what cards you need in the matchup, trying to set up for the late game. And by the late game, I mean, we're talking for turn five when Ancestral Visions comes off suspend, of course. Um, so Spell Center is really good at sort of giving you that catch-up mechanic in terms of mana advantage where you're trading one mana for two mana. And you're perfectly fine at any given time trading your Spell Center for literally any two-drop. You just want to trade one for one as often as possible and then catch up with your variance-reducing blue cards and your card drawing and Ancestral Visions and Cryptic Command, Colgon's Command, Snapcaster Mage, all that. Uh, Counter Squall, on the other hand... I used to play in the gate. Um, there's a lot of just non-creatures in the format that are very, very powerful that you really need to answer. And I recently learned that there's a negate with upside in Countersquall. Now, of course, there's a trade-off with everything. You don't just get you know free freebies running around. It's not a strict upgrade to negate and the fact that it cost a black mana also, which did come back to punish me in one of my matches. But... The added ability to cause the opponent to lose two life is very important. Like I said earlier, this deck's not really great at closing the game. And there were at least six times that I counted this weekend where the two-point loss of life from Counter Squall allowed me to change the line of play that I was making to be a little bit more aggressive and actually close out the game faster than I would have been able to. Well, also with the, and, with the Snapcaster ability, I'm assuming just the fact that your, your negate with flashback means by the time you used it twice, you've hit him twice with the Goblin Guide. I mean, that has to be worth something. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's like they shock fetch them or shock shock themselves twice essentially or you know fetch crack take two crack another fetch land. Like if I could have all my opponents start at sixteen life, I would just always play burn. Yeah. Now you're not getting all of your opponents to start at sixteen life per se with this, but every you know sort of chipping away at the iceberg certainly helps. Yeah, but I mean between lightning bolt, Colgan's command, counter squall, and snapcaster mage, and even in some ways Tassiger rebuying those things. Plus your, you know, your velocity of getting to those cards in your deck with ancestral visions and zero visions and thought scour, you have a very legitimate burn plan here. Get, you know, like especially because people go so low in the format. Yeah, I, I won a couple matches this weekend, or sorry, not matches, but games this weekend by literally not attacking my opponent during the course of the game, just playing defense and going, 
All right, bolt you, snapcaster, block your guy, bolt you, Colgon's command, shock you, pick up snapcaster mage, flash and snapcaster mage, bolt you. Like, I love it. I love it. That's so sweet. That's like I, I love I love interactions like that. I tend to I tend to favor I want the best of both worlds, so I like my decks to be tempo decks that do all those things, but also can play threats on the first two turns. Um, it's There's very difficult. right there. Yeah, it's difficult to do <laughs> all of those things, but yeah, it's, it definitely looks like in and modern. And two creeping tar pits in the land. Yeah, so let's get to the lands actually here next. So you've got, we just did a mana base construction episode pretty recently. A couple things that jump out to me here. So you, how many how many fetches are there, Kessler? It looks like four Scalding Tarns, four Polluted Delta, right? That's all? So you have eight Only fetches. Eight. Right, and then how many shocks? You have two water graves, two steam vents, and it looks like one blood crypt. So it's 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 the standard. What five, eight, about? And eight and five, one of each basic, yes. like, uh, other than islands. Um, looks like you have a sulfur you have, falls, you have two man lands, and a spire bluff canal, and a sulfur falls. Yeah. So talking about on that episode reasons to play these other kinds of lands. We mentioned the new fast lands would have a place probably as one ofs in some of these multicolored decks, sometimes two ofs. We mentioned that with Sulphur Falls, it would be playing like a Sulphur Falls or a Filter Land as probably a one of. Yeah, so so it, it's interesting because we talked about that and, and this deck really only has Cryptic Command as a triple color card. Everything else is two color uh, is one of each of the mana, so you don't need Filter Lands as much. Um Though it does look like you're going for untapped lands in the early turns, which is why you're only playing two Creeping Tar Pit and only one... Um, where'd it go? Sulfur canal. Uh, the, yeah, the, the the canal, where it's it's really important. I mean, you can tell us, but it, it seems like it's important for you to keep your mana untapped. Yeah, so this mana base is a little more complex than I'd like it. Um, the five shock lands i think is the one that usually is a little tricky to people if you're used to playing jonder abzan you'll usually see people play five shock lands but this deck exceptionally needs the fifth shock land because of thought scour frequently in the early game you'll just mill over one of your shock lands and if you just don't have the ability to fetch both a blue land and a and that blue land of another color i.e a watery grave or a steam vents you could actually like color screw yourself in these really awkward situations where you can't fetch a land that'll allow you to double spell, like terminate and counter scroll on the same turn for double black, or you won't be able to both play cryptic command off of a snapcaster mage. Like you get into one of these like really dicey spots if you don't have all the shock lands. And then you have lands like Spire Bluff Canal and Sulphur Falls that are important to the deck because of choke. Right. Um I ran into Craig Wesco in the top eight of Grand Prix Pittsburgh where I literally just got choked out of the match where I'm sitting there looking at my land base of steam vents, water grave steam vents going, huh, I wonder if there's lands in this form that I can play that don't get choked that produce these colors <laughs> of mana. Trust me, there's a ton of them. You just have to sort of experiment with all of them. And uh, So for this weekend, I was trying out a Singleton Spire Bluff Canal. I usually play two Sulphur Falls in that place. Um, two creeping tar pit again doesn't get hit by choke does get hit by blood moon unfortunately that's why we have five basics creeping tar pit's a great threat to help close out the game um, the unblockable is I think a little bit better than the power tougher power and toughness flipping ability that you'll see on uh, goodness gracious what is the wandering fumarole yeah but fumarole also costs one more to activate that is probably the biggest cost the second surprisingly get to eight in a number of games where the games really drag on and it's really nice to be able to animate a creeping tar pit and hold up snapcaster mage plus terminate or hold up cryptic command or hold up 
Colagon's Commander, or what have you. I can see Creeping uh, Tarpit being a frustrating card to have to deal with in the later game sometimes. Yeah, it's also a tricky thing for other people to deal with. They're usually like, oh, it's very easy to block, you know, your one Snapcaster Mage. Try to block a 3-2 unblockable creature. It never worked out for people blocking Blighted Agent. It's not going to work out <laughs> if you block a Creeping Tarpit. Right. So that pretty much wraps up the main deck. Let's We're, we're going to do a quick uh, breeze over with the sideboard here just so we can ask you a couple more questions about your actual tournament experience before we... Uh, we we run out of time. Uh, I guess I guess in in your sideboard, there's something that's insane that jumps out. I mean, surgical extraction is also really important against dredge decks, especially now where instant speed interaction with them is important because they can just explosively kill you on turn two, three, um, and then just get ahead of you. Um, Sun droplet is really sweet. <laughs> yep, totally sweet. Um, full mana mages, big mana decks. I'm assuming. Um, is there anything specific with your sideboard that you know you what you know that you want to talk about I'd like to believe that the sideboard is pretty self-explanatory um, going to Dallas I knew there were a bunch of very solid burn players that lived in the region so I wasn't gonna leave home without a second sun droplet uh, surgical extraction was a card that exceptionally overperformed on the weekend I only played against dredge twice one of the times I intentionally drew the other time I kept a zero lander in game two with two surgical extractions and won the game fairly easily thanks to it I was watching. Uh, I was watching some of the, uh, the coverage. I ended up watching probably a half dozen of the matches, plus a lot of the top eight. I'm trying to remember. Was did you anger of the gods away cards in a uh, in a Bantel Drazi deck in one of the games, like sweep a board, or was that? I'm trying to remember if that was a different matchup. Uh, how good was anger for you? I did it in LA to Pascal in the top eight of the tournament, where I boarded in an anger of the gods against his Eldrazi deck and exiled a world breaker. With it, where I angered the board, exiling two of his creatures and my one Snapcaster Mage, and then I terminated his World Breaker. And then he tried to put it in the graveyard, and I was like, well, hold on, buddy. That was hit by anger. And he was just like, oh, that's why you did that. And I was like, yeah, I had to do a little bit of work to make my Anger of the Gods great, but it was actually pretty effective there. Uh, anger of the Gods, all in all, though, really good against Affinity, really good against the sort of creature-heavy decks, if you ever play against Malyra, Merfolk, right. uh, Slivers, Elves... Uh, things of that nature. Anger of the Gods is be fantastic. It's fantastic against drags. Exiles the creatures. Is Slivers um, an deck you see in modern a decent amount uh, at the competitive at the competitive level? No, not really. But uh, I'd love to see it there some more. Slivers is sweet. <laughs> yeah, Slivers <laughs> is awesome. So let's. So we're we're gonna move past the sideboard here because uh, the list will be posted on the website if you guys want to check out his full list. But I just wanted to ask a little bit, just a little bit about your matchups. We we I think we did the Grixis Gauntlet with you last time you were on the show. Um, and obviously you're playing a different list now. This doesn't have Rin's Prodigy in it, so that's the major difference. Well, let, let's Gauntlet. I do want to uh, more talk about it. Are there any specific games from the tournament that you want to kind of bring up and talk about from the last game against Good Red to some of your top eight to, to other experiences in the tournament? Um, I mean, I guess we could talk about the finals. I certainly felt like I was winning game one. I felt like I got drawn out on slightly where... I might have been able to manage some resources better in terms of uh, Icologons commanded at one point a and Kieran Alarm, what I believe was Kevin's turn four, about to untap into my turn five, where I shocked the and Kieran Alarm and then made him discard a card instead of killing one of the Thopter tokens. Um, I made that decision trying to gain more information. I think that's something that's really important to do if you are interested in playing this deck, is trying to learn what the context of your opponent's hand is so I will frequently be willing to take more damage with my Colagons commands to discard a card from their hand. 
Um, and the information I got from him was he discarded the lightning bolt. So I thought, oh man, his hands really flooded with, you know, very good threats. Uh, it'd be very difficult for him to discard a lightning bolt here when he only has three or I think it was four cards remaining in his hand. And he's, you know, just made four power worth of guys in play. So I figured his hand was probably like another Pian Karanalar, maybe a Koth or a Chandra or a Stormbreath Dragon. And lo and behold, I immediately just slam my Tassiger on the next turn, and I'm picking up my Tassiger and putting him to the graveyard because he correctly evaluated Scred higher than I did, where he had a Scred in his hand, had a fifth mana source. So he played his fifth land, Scred my Tassiger for five. So I think I could have better managed my Tassiger threat there. Uh, that game was somewhat frustrating to lose, where I felt like I could have played the game a lot better. And the game two, I thought, was an even bigger blunder where I just completely messed up sequencing um, into his Relic of Progenitus and didn't just draw the fetch land off the top of my deck at the end of his turn two and said Thought Scarred my own Polluted Delt off the top of my deck and then got myself Blood Moon four turns later because I couldn't fetch my basic Swamp. Is Eternal Scourge for you a problem in that deck at all? It seems like it would be a hard card for your deck to deal with. It's surprisingly good against this deck. Like, I can't anger it. I can't bolt it. I can't terminate it. I mean, I can cast these spells on it. It's just not going to end well for me. Right. Um, my sort of most effective way to answer it is actually just the most effective card I have in the matchup, which is Tassiger. His deck lines up very poorly against Tassiger. If I can ever stick a Tassiger, it's usually just going to run rampant on the board state. Right. Uh, so my plan was to get Tassiger in play and sort of just play a tempo game that you were talking about earlier, very similar to how a Delver deck plays, is stick my young Pyromancer, protect my young Pyromancer, you know, until the game's over. That's sort of what my plan was with the Tassiger. So obviously, the Pyromancer being the metaphor, we don't play it in stacks, but keep going. Certainly. Um, but I completely mismanaged my resources, Didn't, did not sort of pan out how he was going to use his Relic versus how I set the top of my library up with my Serum Visions, and just sort of blundered the game completely on turn two by milling over my Polluted Delta. My thought process initially was, okay, if I mill myself here... I can actually set up to find another black source and immediately crack it for crack that land for a black uh, and just slam this Tassiker and just hope the Tassiker runs wild when I just in reality didn't need to do that. I could have just untapped, played my fetch land, cracked it, and if Kevin wasn't willing to exile my graveyard for fetch on the stack, I was just going to get to play Tassiker for three mana. I just didn't even have to burn my Thought Scour because my graveyard already contained one fetch land to get my basic island. It already had a... Uh, serum visions in there and the fetch land would have been the third card and then you know three plus the three man i had would have allowed me to cast Tassiger. right um now there has to be some amount of what we were talking about earlier about deck preparation and practice where this is not a common deck the scred red deck has popped up but i mean this is a very very fringe deck so there when you're talking about misassigning your resources and not reading the board state and planning maybe not as well as you had throughout the tournament a tournament you didn't drop a match uh a game even is that true uh, I went 16-1-1 one, one at the end result. I'm trying to think how many games did I lose. I lost one, two, three games on day one, and I lost four, five. I lost eight games throughout the entire tournament. So, okay, so you, yeah, so you, you ran super, super hot. Uh, but the point is, getting to the end of it with that much confidence in your deck to find yourself against the deck that you were that unfamiliar playing against. I mean, is Scred Red something you've practiced a decent amount against or very little? Very little. I would say I have somewhere between 5 and maybe 12 matches against the deck lifetime. So that has to be part of why it's so difficult for you to play against it even in the well, final of a Grand Prix. And on top of that, the scred list you played against was brand new. I mean, the 
the tech of the the scourges had I'd never seen before. Yeah, Chan- this is the first modern tournament to tr- modern GP that Chandra was legal. Like true. like all of these new pieces added to the deck is a completely different situation than it was right d- two months ago. Scred is awesome though. I love that card. Certainly, I, like when I played against this deck in the past, usually they only have about twenty lands and they're on four Simeon Spirit Guides. So I mean, part of my strategy was, oh, I'm going to win game two, and then on game three he's going to be on the play and he's just going to get mana screwed. Like, that was literally something running through my mind. Oh my gosh. I'm running so well this tournament, and I'm getting so lucky that I just feel that this is bound to happen. Like, it's a very unrealistic thought to have, but, like, I had a plan when I, you know, sort of presented my deck for game two. I knew what my game strategy was, and it was like, okay, I'm going to execute this game strategy. Game three is going to roll around. You know, he's going to keep a two-land hand. He's going to brick. I'm going to try to snowball the game as quickly as I humanly possibly can before he gets to his, you know, much more powerful Cloth of the Hammer, PNLR, Stormbreath Dragon part of the game. And if I can do that, you know, I'm going to be holding a trophy. Obviously, I'm sitting here talking to you guys without a trophy in my hand. So um, I didn't play well enough to earn it. I certainly could have played game two better also. But yeah, part of it was just not understanding all the sort of little pieces going on. Uh, certainly got ahead of myself, didn't really slow down and think, okay, what exactly is going to happen here if I do this? A little bit of unfamiliarity with exactly how he was going to time his relic activations. Um, well, next time. I mean, look, you're, you've had you've had a pretty pretty darn good run this last little while here, and it's in the sweetest format there is. So Going through a GP with a total of seven total game losses, or eight total game losses, is still extraordinarily impressive, not to mention, I mean, you don't have a trophy, but you did get a 5K check. So yeah, that's pretty sweet. I, I feel like... I would be proud, and congratulations. So, uh, yeah, we are, we are running out of time here. Uh, we would love to go through even more of a tournament report, but uh, we'll have to, to be continued for the next time you come on. Thank you so much for coming back on again, Corey. This was a super fun time getting to chat with you and uh, talk to another rogue, another rogue magic player who takes the rogueness all the way to the finals of a Grand Prix. It's inspiration. It's inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, no, so yep. Appreciate it. So, as a reminder, you can find us at the MMCast. We are at the website, www.collected.company. It's a weird URL, but that's how it works. Uh, You can follow Ben at... Ben Bateman Media. Uh, And those are pretty much... uh, And I am at Cass Wiley. Uh, Corey? I'm at Corey underscore Burkhart. And, uh, yeah, check out the YouTube channel. The videos are updated every week. And we'll see you guys uh, next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Corey. Later, everybody. Thank you for your attention. See you later, alligator.